Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 21, being recorded on Wednesday, April 6th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Happy 21st birthday. Yeah, it's very exciting. Our podcast has all grown up and can now legally drink. Yeah, and to celebrate, we're having shots of tequila as we uh, record the podcast. So, so clink, toast to you, and thanks to all our listeners for sticking with us for 21 episodes. Right back at you. And I think at the current pace of consumption, the end of the podcast could be the most exciting one yet. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I know the calendar just ticked over to April. And one of the things that means to me is that you probably have same store sales data for March. We absolutely do. They just came out today uh, and it was pretty interesting. So March, obviously the last month of the first quarter. And so the, the things that came out, Google Shopping had a very strong showing that includes, uh, it's also product listing ads. Um, the, it's one of those programs with two names, so I always try to include them both. And uh, again, for listeners, uh, everyone already knows this, but just in case, e-commerce baseline growth that is put out there by Comscore is, is call it 15%. So that's the that's the baseline that we're always measuring everything against. So against that, Google Shopping PLAs came in at 41.8%, so almost three times the rate of e-commerce growth, which is pretty impressive. Um, the second fastest growing channel we track is uh, called Other Third-Party Marketplaces. And this is where we we have a bucket of you know, we support over 30 marketplaces now. So eBay and Amazon are not in there, but all those other 30-ish uh, marketplaces are in there. That grew at 37.2%, so about twice the rate of e-commerce. Comparison shopping engines, which are inclusive of Google Shopping and then all their traditional comparison shopping engines, and we support like a whopping 160 comparison shopping engines, believe it or not, that grew at 16.1%. So right in line with e-commerce. Amazon also grew in line with e-commerce at about uh, at 14.9%. Then eBay was a little sluggish for March, coming in at negative 0.2%. And then when you peel the onion on eBay, uh, auctions have been down for a long time. They're, they're kind of not in favor. They were down like 20% year over year, but but it's becoming less of a meaningful part. But the two pieces of the eBay number uh, that we also report on is fixed price. Uh, and that's the buy it now kind of stuff. And that came in at down 5.8%. Uh, and then the, the silver lining on eBay was uh, within eBay Motors, they have parts and accessories, and that grew 11.3%. So not quite up to e-commerce speed, but but definitely uh, much better than the rest of the eBay components. So, so two things I wanted to kind of dig into there. The Google uh, you know outcome was was pretty interesting. So we track this pretty closely, and what we're seeing, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing anything you've heard here. Uh, you know, Google um, has like any ad company has lots of dials, and they seem to be turning every dial they can hard right when it comes to product listing ads. So, for example, the number of search terms where the ad unit shows up is up. That uh, it's going, they're showing it up. They're showing the unit a lot more over on mobile, uh, and then we've noticed them doing quite a bit of testing with the ad unit itself that gets shown up. Um, and we've talked about, uh, I think it was two to three weeks ago, we talked about 
Google announced they were getting rid of the right rail of AdWords, it seems that on desktop, PLAs are really occupying a lot more pixels on the screen. Uh, in fact, we found one ad unit that actually shows 10 products. It's kind of a four by th- um so four columns by three rows. This particular ad unit uh, for Nest Thermostat only has 10 of the spots populated, but it could hold 12. So it's like the largest ad unit I've ever seen Google put out there, which, which is pretty interesting. Now, Google tests things a lot. Maybe that won't be something that sticks. Um, we've also noticed uh, on both desktop and mobile, they are doing a lot of these carousel ads, which when you're on mobile, they're pretty nice because you can just flick through them and they scroll with your finger. On the desktop, they have arrows, so it's not quite as dynamic. But we're seeing them test um, the showing of that, the arrow configuration, and the number of products that are in the carousel. All that added up to be the primary drivers for why we're seeing such strong growth there. Uh, it does cannibalize Google search um, which I didn't talk about, but it, that was that was relatively slow uh, as Google Shopping takes share. The other thing to make sure people know about product listing ads is they have announced, uh, and I want to make sure everyone is aware of this because a lot of folks I talk to aren't aware. Um, when you send a data feed to Google Shopping, there's this thing in there that's kind of like a SKU number or a, a unique identifier, and every every channel has a different acronym for this on. Amazon, it's an ASIN, and then eBay has a EPN, I think, and um, Google's is GTIN, and that stands for the Global Trade Item Number. And those are going to be required um, come May 15th. So if you do not include that by May 16th, your ads will just stop showing, your your products will. So I think it's really important for everyone to, to, that, that may not be aware of that to um, go and do an audit of your data feed that you're sending to Google to make sure you're doing that the correct way. Uh, and the other one is they're they're and I don't quite understand why they're doing this, but they're now including a numerical rank on each PLA image based on user ratings. Um, and if you do a search for top or best, um, what's pretty interesting is it will show you one through kind of five or six, however many ads are in the unit, and it'll actually show you the rating, the the uh, the rank. So a good example is if you do best Wi-Fi thermostat. Um, when I do that, I see six different Wi-Fi thermostats, and they're ranked. Um, by the user ratings that are there and the little stars. What do you think about all that Google news? Yeah, there's a bunch in there. Google Shopping like was historically one of the fast runners and the top of your list, but it feels like they're making even more ground at the expense of some of the others, and particularly at the expense of eBay. Obviously, Google's doing a bunch of tweaking to those PLAs in in particular, and you've you've highlighted it a bunch of that. But one of the ramifications is they're shifting more of the uh, searcher's attention to those ads and the PLAs in particular and away from the organic search results. And so retailers that had intrinsic advantages in organic search or were you know, more dependent on organic search than the paid are probably being disproportionately affected by this stronger shift to advertising in the same way that like good content publishers on Facebook kind of took it in the shorts when Facebook would start clamping down on their algorithm and showing more sponsored posts and less organic content. Yeah, and um, one of the ways that plays out is um, because we help our customers manage both AdWords and um, PLAs, we don't do anything on SEO. But what we can see is we've seen budgets kind of go from uh, 100%, you know, uh, way back when, uh, 
call it 2000, I think 11, uh, it was a hundred percent AdWords, zero PLA and then 50, 50 last year. And now we're starting to see it swing kind of 66, 33. So, uh, and a lot of that is, is following these, you know, the, I kind of think of it as the number of pixels that, that Google allocates to PLAs is kind of where the budgets are going. So it's been interesting to watch that. And they, you know, for whatever reason, they've, they've got their, pedal to the metal on, on that program. Um, and it, it's interesting you bring up the eBay. That's been the most frequently asked question we've gotten since we published the same store sales. Uh, and the, the question usually goes, hey, I saw Google increased about as much between February and March, about as much as eBay decreased. Was there kind of, you know, was is, there, is Google effectively kind of directly impacting eBay? Um, that one's a little, I you know, I don't see any data that indicates that. I, I have seen some anecdotal stuff. Um, what, what do you think about that? It may or may not be affecting the effectiveness of their ads yet, but it's certainly got to be affecting their overall traffic because, again, you know, eBay is someone that historically would have better than average SEO. And, you know, I also feel like, eBay is one that has tweaked their spending on Google a number of times. And so one of the suspicions that would come to mind immediately is, is eBay in a cycle where they're slowing their investment in Google? And so is Google reciprocating by eating up more of that attention? Yeah, and... um we use several of these different tools out there, and one that I like uh, is called Compete, and it has a traffic analyzer. And, and just as people ask this question, I was digging in, and the one thing I saw in there was a steep decline of – you can actually go in and look at the different um, – you know, subdomains of Google that feed into eBay and the Gmail one was down pretty substantially. So I wonder if there's been some change at the Gmail level, you know, Gmail is constantly tweaking um, who they allow to be seen and where. So is it going to show up in the main inbox? And then I think many, most people have switched over to that interface where they, they put the promotional kind of um, emails into these different tabs and, and categories. So I'm wondering if there's something going on there, like maybe eBay's emails aren't getting through on Gmail. Um, and then anecdotally, you know, I, we have a lot of people running uh, a lot of tests and looking at PLA ads. What I, I don't have any data on this, but just anecdotally, it looks like eBay showing up a lot less frequently and high in PLA ads. And a lot of times eBay would show up with multiple spots on a, like one of those 12, 12 potential ad units, you would sometimes see eBay on there two or three times. And now we're only seeing them one time. So I wonder if either eBay pulled back some or Google has in some way changed what they're allowing eBay to see, or if they're kind of tweaking their relevancy index in some way to such that they show up less frequently. So it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, when, when earnings come out here in the next 30 days, we'll have eBay, Amazon and Google, and it'll be interesting to hear what's going on between those three companies. And I would throw out one other unfounded theory at this point. that There had been a number of tweaks to organic search at Google, right? And those are followed super closely. And we're not going to deep dive into it in the podcast, but you know, there was a lot of news last month about this new mega raking factor called Rank Brain, which kind of aggregates a bunch of the old um, signals into one single number. And you know, Google was maybe a little more overt than they had in the past about talking about what factors influence ranking. And one of the things that they absolutely did say was context and click-through rate. And so they they didn't say that necessarily that they're also applying that same standard to their ad units, but it 
would certainly stand to reason that they are, and it would certainly philosophically be in line with everything Google does. They're trying to get you to the most relevant result that is going to cause you to buy something on one of those ads. And so one of the disadvantages to an advertiser like eBay is because so many of their listings are unstructured and are sort of the Wild West, you're most likely to click on an eBay PLA and not match exactly the product that you are searching for. And so you could imagine that they have higher bounce rates and lower relevancy than some of the other more you know structured listings like uh, an e-commerce site or Amazon, although Amazon doesn't do much in PLAs. Mm-hmm. That you, you could imagine that that lack of relevancy is hurting eBay's rank for PLAs and pushing them down a little bit. Yeah, one, one other area of SEO I'm not an expert on, but I, you mentioned it kind of in passing um, either last week or the week before, is more and more people are putting local elements into their search terms. So I wonder if, uh, you know, and eBay doesn't really have local data, you know, it's not a local kind of site. So I wonder if maybe that could be playing an impact because you said something interesting. You said, I think that there's this kind of when Google detects a local kind of element, they kind of switch to another essential, essentially index where they, they look up things. Um, say a little bit more about that. And, and do you think that's impacting eBay? So again, when you do a search and Google explicitly or implicitly thinks that there's a geographic component to that search. And explicitly is super obvious, right? If you say, hey, I'm looking for Wi-Fi thermostats near me, then it's going to geolocate you based on your IP. And instead of giving you the Google search results, they're going to give you results from the Google index of Wi-Fi thermostats that they think are in the same zip code that you're in. But what they also do is for certain kinds of searches, they implicitly assume that geography matters. So when you do a search for pizza, uh, they implicitly assume you care a lot more about pizza that's close to you than pizza that's 10 states away. And so they automatically give you the local rankings. And when you search on a mobile device, by default, they're much more likely to implicitly assume that your geography matters. And so just a higher and higher percentage of the search results on Google for products are now coming out of this local index instead of the general Google organic index. And so that favors retailers that that are in that local index, which means they have stores and they have things called citations, which are like the listings and all the third-party directories, like the Yellow Pages and Yelps and uh, Facebook businesses and all of those sorts of places. The more of those signals you have that you're a credible location and that you have particular products, the better you rank for local SEO, and the more and more searches have that that geographic intent, the less and less the organic search matters for products. And so Amazon and eBay, because they don't have locations, are kind of disadvantaged versus the omni-channel retailers for that. And it's obviously one of the things that an omni-channel retailer should really try to maximize for their best effect. Yeah, and eBay went through a uh, kind of a phase where they're working really closely with uh, the Toys R Us of the world and whatnot. And they, they did have some of that, but they've stripped all that out now, unfortunately. You've both seen like nefarious black hat versions of this. Like someone will say, hey, I can ship my product to every FedEx office in the world. So I'm going to list all the FedEx addresses on my website, which certainly Google didn't appreciate. And then there are more legitimate versions. You mentioned that that eBay has had some partnerships in the past. I think of someone like a Wayfair right now is trying to partner with local furniture stores, and that's a, a legitimate way to sort of get some more local SEO for furniture, which is another category that tends to 
have a lot of geographic intent. You care a lot more about furniture near you than you do across the country. So interesting space, a lot happening. It certainly doesn't feel like Google has locked down on a particular approach. It, it seems like we're all seeing lots of A-B tests and, and lots of experimentation right now. And a bunch of the changes Google made to PLAs happen halfway through last month. So whatever results we saw in your March same-store sales, I'm even much more interesting to see what they look like after a full month in April. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, another big focus for Google is this purchase on on Google kind of a thing. And, um, you know, they're going to be speaking at Catalyst next week. So I'm interested to hear if they have any updates on that. Yep. Wouldn't shock you if that's one of the reasons they're pushing hard for the global trade item numbers to be Mm -hmm. more compliant in there. And I, I guess I would throw out one other thing as we're talking about PLAs versus paid search. One of the, because the PLAs are working so much better, one of the things that's sort of starting to happen is PLAs can only be for specific products. So for products in the near future that have a, a GTIN number, but paid search results can be for categories and broader concepts that don't necessarily map to a particular product. So you're almost starting to see advertisers think of paid search as kind of middle of the funnel terms that are like category terms and things like that, that are one step further away from knowing exactly what product you want to buy. And PLAs for that bottom of the funnel uh, closest to purchase decision search. And so not surprisingly, you know, Google's focusing the most on monetizing that very bottom of the funnel. And that's obviously the first place they would they would be able to take advantage of that that buy now button, for example. Yeah, the, the other interesting thing looking at the data between the two programs, AdWords and PLA, is the AOVs are kind of kind of starting to to bifurcate. So uh, PLAs are getting kind of cheaper, and AdWords are getting more expensive. The last data, I think, I have to go check this, but it was something like you know AdWords is creeping up towards one hundred and fifty dollars, which is a very high AOV for for a program in e commerce, uh, and then um, Google Shopping is trending more towards kind of fifty sixty dollars. So so you know when I read the tea leaves on that, it feels like. Consumers, if they're buying something that's kind of under $100, it's very easy to look at the images, see the price comparison, and just do it. Um, whereas if they're buying something a little more substantial, maybe a luxury item, a higher-end electronic, you know, something kind of north of $100, they're, they're taking time and maybe researching and, and tripping through the AdWords before they buy something at the top of the funnel. Or they're, they're saying, you know, I want to look at more than just these PLAs. I want to kind of dig in myself and, and find what I'm looking for. So that's another kind of interesting angle of the consumer behavior that's starting to, to uh, be pretty transparent. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. The PLAs tend to work best for either low consideration items or items where the considerations already happened. And if you're earlier in the sales cycle and you need to show some really compelling content to drive that consideration, the the paid search you know continues to to be a cost-effective tool for some of those things. Yep, so those were the highlights of the same-store sales, um, and it's pretty interesting to look at the PLAs. It was a really big week for Amazon, so I'll um, uh, hit us with what you saw. Yeah, there, there was a ton. I'm starting to feel like that's, this is a, just a new weekly norm for Amazon is to release a ton of stuff every week. But the first thing is, I think most listeners know Jeff Bezos is clearly a listener of our podcast. And a couple of episodes ago, we listed some of our biggest peeves with Amazon. And one of those peeves was that Prime Now was not available on the web. So it was, you know, only available through this dedicated app and that that was limiting in a bunch of ways. And I'm assuming that 
Jeff converted the podcast to an email, added a question mark, and forwarded it to someone. And bam, now we, we hear that Amazon plans to move Prime Now onto the web. Yeah, I'm excited to see how that is going to work because, um, and, and I've been getting a lot of questions about this, so I think it's a good time to kind of inject it. There's, and there was also news today that that Amazon has expanded the same day shipping program that they're calling Prime Free. So there's really think of it as three programs, and the first one is the Prime that we know and love, the two day free all you can eat shipping. And that has about 30 million items that are prime eligible. So um, and think of that as anything in the fulfillment centers that that is within kind of a hub away from you. So so, you know, you're in Chicago and you've got a local fulfillment center and that fulfillment center probably has two to three million items uh, and they they get to 30 million items by having this kind of next day travel between their fulfillment centers. Um, they used to do that a lot with FedEx and UPS and now they're using those planes that they're renting. So that's, that's the outer ring. So think of this outer ring of 30 million items, two days, and then there's another ring that gets a lot closer to you. And that's the stuff kind of in your local fulfillment center. So call it about a million items kind of on a consistent basis. And that's what's in this prime free program where if you order Generally before noon, then the afternoon, you'll have it the same day. So it's kind of what they're calling same day delivery. So the next ring, we go from 30 million items down to about a million items that are available with that program. Then the ring shrinks pretty dramatically down to 10,000 items. So kind of call it everyday essentials. So toilet paper, toothpaste, apples, bananas, some food, grocery, CPG kind of stuff. And that's prime now. Um, and that's actually got its whole own fulfillment center network that's a much smaller footprint. These are kind of like twenty to 30,000 square foot fulfillment centers. And what they're doing is it's kind of almost like a, a content delivery network in a way. They're, they're putting that most frequently asked stuff even closer to you uh, in that network. But they can only do about 10,000 items because that's all they have space for. And that's now available in 30 cities. And um, prior to that announcement that you talked about, that was a little odd because it was out on its own and you had to use this separate app. So it's going to be interesting, you know, these these uh, concentric rings of inventory will all be on the main site and it's going to be interesting to see how they get flagged and when you add them and remove them to the cart, what happens. And, you know, you could conceivably have, you know, three things in your cart. One's going to come in two hours. Uh, another one's going to come later that afternoon and yet another one will come in two days. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they, from a user experience perspective, present that to folks and, and let it, you know, make it clear what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I am going to be very interested in the user experience because as you add capability, you also add complexity. And, you know, returns in particular are a crushing element in e-commerce. And one of the easiest ways to get returns or at least customer service calls are when that customer orders three things and only one of them comes in the box, right? So when they, you know, get split shipped or for a lot of other retailers, maybe one of the items is being drop shipped from the manufacturer. So it comes in, in a separate box. Like all of those things tend to cause confusion for customers and they result in expensive customer service calls and or canceled orders. And so it's going to be super interesting to see how Amazon tries to add this capability, but do it in a, a graceful way that doesn't confuse shoppers. Yeah. And um, within so within all these programs, they also have third parties injected in there, which is a whole nother element of complexity. Um, so uh, and I had a friend actually uh 
tweet me an image in Seattle where they've been doing this for quite a while with local local grocery stores in Prime Now. Um, they actually had the same pint of Ben and Jerry's, and you could see it available from Amazon directly in two other grocery stores. And what's interesting is it did that Amazon kind of a thing where it effectively showed the price on the SKU that the three people were offering. Um, and that that's the first time I've seen that done on grocery because usually, and Google has struggled with this, uh, all the Google advertisers um, that are in Google Express, which is their their same-day delivery system, they won't allow Google to intermingle their, uh, their listings. So uh, when you go search within Google Express for something that's pretty common like a bottle of Fuji water, what you'll find is you'll see Walgreens, Fuji water, then you'll see Target, and then you'll see Costco, and then you'll see a local grocery store. So and then they try to make it so that you can't really price compare. So it was really interesting to me to see Amazon leaping forward on that and, and having a very much marketplace look down at the local grocery level. Yeah, no, I think that's totally going to be fascinating. One interesting antidote, because different cities have different proximity to those fulfillment centers, my prime free fulfillment center here in Chicago is actually in Indiana. Hmm. And so it's a little further away. And so the way they mainly promote it, which is kind of confusing, they call it same-day shipping, but the main offer for same-day shipping is order by 9 p.m., get it the next day. Yeah, yeah, I've seen several people mention that. Which uh, seems counterintuitive. Same-day doesn't mean exactly what I would have thought it meant. Same 24 hours. Exactly. (laughs) Still a super useful service, though. So that's super interesting, but because a few weeks ago we were able to get Amazon to move that to the web by just mentioning it on the podcast, I thought we would try again this week with another knit with Amazon, and this is with the retail store that we talked about last week with Kevin Hertel. Yeah, let's. Uh, so Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, start paying attention right now. Yeah, so Jeff, I, I'm here to tell you that you are the worst omni-channel retailer in America. You now have one store. But that store is completely siloed from your core business, right? Like we talked last week about the fact that you don't take cash in that store. We theorized that they wouldn't take online returns. And Kevin was nice enough to buy something from Amazon and try to return it this week. Uh, And he confirmed with us that they would not accept in-store returns from stuff purchased on Amazon, even if it was an item that was sold in that store. So Kevin bought a a, a Echo Dot. But the big thing We just talked about local SEO before, and one of the big things that you use the web for when you shop in a physical store is you use the web to pre-shop that store. And so, you know, 10 years ago, we had to drive to the store to see if they might have had something in stock you're interested in. Today, you can pretty routinely go online and make sure that that store has the goods you want before you get in the car and go get them. And in many cases, you're going to buy online, pick up in store. At the very least, you're going to see if it's on the shelf in the store and sort of make your physical shopping more convenient. And Amazon offers none of those features. You get no visibility to what books are carried in that store. You get no visibility to whether you could walk in there and buy an Echo Dot in that store, which are backordered till August on their website, for example. You certainly can't buy online, pick up in store. And while people might think that that's not that important when you have all these two-hour shipping options with Amazon, I would still remind you, depending on, on what study you believe between 60 and 100 million Prime users, uh, 100 is almost certainly optimistic, there's 240 million Amazon shoppers. And so there's you know a ton of shoppers that don't have a Prime service. And the best way to get fast, free shipping for any other retailer in America is 
free shipping when you buy online, ship to store, or buy online, pick up in store, and Amazon doesn't offer any of those things. They also, you know, as we've talked about, just won't even let you see the prices in the store until you pull out a mobile app or a scanner or something like that. So, well, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the things where Amazon is grossly ahead and doing a great job. I certainly want to call out the fact that the store feels like a very disjointed venture from the rest of Amazon, and I'm going to be super curious to see the second store in San Diego and see if they make any strides or if the roadmap we just gave them might help them uh, fix it up. Yeah, and I'm willing to give them a pass. I feel like it's an experiment, so I think they're they're learning and trying to figure out, you know, can... I think the experiment was more, can they bring a lot of the online stuff into a store? So it's very unidirectional and not meant to be omni-channel at this point. But but I do, I do when I was actually there, um, you know, right before the holidays, I saw the exact same thing. A woman was trying to return something and the clerk was like, no. And she was, she was having a bit of a fit. You know, you're like, you mean to tell me that you have an Amazon store? I'm here in Seattle and you can't take this return. Um, so it was pretty interesting to hear the, the sales clerk try to explain how that that was not working. Yep, absolutely. And I do, I mean, we're being a little tongue in cheek. Like it very clearly is an early experiment. And if it works well, I think we can expect to see a lot of evolution. And that, you know, that's one of the things Amazon is known for is that fast testing and iterating. But but just want to point out that the, the store is a very rough early version, like some of the other things we've we've pointed out, like the private label apparel that have horrible product listings or some of those things. Like to me, that doesn't mean they're going to be horrible about it for long. It means that they're dipping their toe. And if it looks encouraging, we can expect to see fast iteration. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings up uh, an exciting thing that happened this week. And I always look forward to this. Um, this is a, a, a very retail geeky admission, but I keep a little database of these things and sometimes poke back at them if I'm, you know, kind of need a little uplift uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and that's the Jeff Bezos shareholder letter. Uh, did you get a chance to see that? Absolutely. I was waiting for it to come out. Cool. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, I thought it was really well done. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for our listeners, but I, you know, I, I definitely recommend if there's, if there's one thing you get out of the podcast this week, go read that letter. It's, it's really impressive. Um, I felt like it was very kind of a humble, um, you know, letter. It's not not really pounding the chest. But the one thing Bezos seems to be spending a lot of time here in like the last three or four years is really uh, culture of the company. And and they definitely have this kind of fail fast mentality, which is really interesting when you're so large. You know, it's, it becomes what, what you know, what happens is the innovators dilemma sets in where you become you create something, the scale of Amazon, you're fat and happy, you're leading and sure enough, someone surpasses you. So, so they seem you know, hell bent on not letting that happen. And um, I just thought that the, the culture part of that is really fascinating and helps give an insight into, you know, why would they put a store out there that doesn't have returns? And it's kind of this, this let's, let's go fast, break things. And yeah, we may fail in there, but, but think of all that we'll learn when we do it. What, what were your highlights? Hopefully we are doing spoilers because my highlights are going to spoil something from the letter. <laughs> but I do want to echo your sentiment. Like In some ways, I feel like this letter is a fall-on of the Warren Buffett shareholder letters that he writes every year that are these amazingly insightful letters that, you know, even if you're not a, a frequent investor, like I feel like, you know, we all learn something from reading that letter every year. And the Bezos letter is starting to take that same sort of intellectual space in the e-commerce field. And what's funny is he wrote the first one in 1997, which might have been the best one ever. And one of the indications that it's so good is that he happily republishes it every year at the bottom of his new letter. So 
you you always get to go back to the 1997 letter where he really laid out a lot of the tenants that that he would then follow over the 20 next 20 years to build this amazing company. So with that being said, obviously he got to harp on the results a little bit. Company's growing very fast. He says they're the fastest company ever to get to 100 billion in sales. He very explicitly called out the fact that, you know, everyone's got different co- co- corporate cultures. There's not necessarily a right or wrong corporate culture. But one of the things that he's particularly proud about in their corporate culture is that they have a culture that's not afraid to fail. And I think he even uses the phrase, I believe we're the best place in the world to fail, which, you know, I think is exactly in line with not being afraid to try these new things. Talks a lot about AWS, the marketplace and the prime and prime being these three big pillars. To your point, he was super humble and and uh, gave a big nod to the level of luck that was necessary for all these things to be successful. You know, he talked a lot about how big the marketplace has become and the fact that they failed in their first two tries out of the gate on marketplaces. And now, you know, it's become such a big growth engine for entrepreneurs. And then the big cool takeaway for me that I did not know is that the Amazon Prime Now service went live in the first market 111 days after the first time they discussed it in a meeting. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So let's call it four months to be able to deliver 10,000 items in an hour. So that's, you know, obviously they have a lot of infrastructure there with fulfillment centers and everything, but but imagine they had to open a, you know, find and open a new small fulfillment center, um, yeah, you know, this flex system, I don't know if that was already in place or not. It probably had to be to get that fast. But but even then, you know, if you had the delivery and everything worked out, just kind of getting a new these things are about fifty thousand square foot kind of fulfillment center up and stocked with ten K items and staffed and then deploying in four months is pretty darn impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he did even um call out that like once you get to a certain scale, there are some competitive advantages. And I think he he made the the joke that entrepreneurs can do lots of amazing things, but no entrepreneur is going to build a Boeing uh, 787 composite airplane in their garage. He's highlighting the fact that with the infrastructure that Amazon now has, they have an opportunity to do those kinds of projects at a, a scale and speed that a smaller company, you know, just simply can't match. Yep, Absolutely. And I think there's going to be more to come. I, I mentioned it that there's a logistics expert I heard talk says he thinks there's 50 prime fulfillment centers um, and only 27 or 30 of them are open. So there may be another 20 cities ready to launch here. You know, and if it's taking, if it took 111 days for the first one, you got to think they've got it down to, you know, call it 50 or 30 days. So, so I suspect it's going to be a really interesting kind of spring and summer here uh, on this level that Amazon's going to take a lot of these programs to areas that a lot of people probably don't think they're capable of. Yep. I think there's a lot of retailers that are still sitting around tables planning their response to prime two day shipping. And I think by the time they execute that response, they're going to be very unpleasantly surprised to see what the new standard is. Yep. What other Amazon stuff did you see this week? A couple new devices, right? Yeah, the um, I we mentioned it on the last show. I actually got my new Amazon uh, the Echo Tap, which is the one where uh, you carry it with you. It's not always on, so the 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 primary Echo is an always on device, um, but it's not portable because it has to be plugged in to kind of power the always on. So this guy is pretty interesting. It's about six inches. It has a really good heft to it, but it's meant to be. Um, kind of like your portable, like the gem 
the little jam box. Is that what those are called? Those little square yep. ones. Yep. Um, it's kind of like that, um, but it has the Alexa piece to it. Um, but unlike normal Echo, you have to hold a, a button down to get Alexa to do stuff. Um, and what's interesting that that does take away from it a lot. So you know, I have it stationary in a room, and it's not nearly as useful without the always on. But um, you know, we the weather's been nice here in North Carolina. We went outside and we're playing with the dogs. I brought it with me and it was kind of cool to just be able to say, Hey, play some songs and, and have it kind of in my pocket, which was kind of nice. So, um, it's still kind of understanding the form factor. There's a lot of cool accessories. So it comes with like these cool rubber carrying things and they had some branded ones. So they had a promotion with Batman versus Superman branded ones, which was kind of neat. So, uh, and it also has the charging stand is uses one of those kind of, you know, contact uh, only kind of charging stand. So you don't have to plug anything in. So you just set it in its stand. It kind of quietly charges and you pick it up and carry it with you wherever you want to go. Induction charger. Induction charger. Yeah. Thank you. So, so that's been pretty cool. I like it. Um, I I do have one of the the other little guys on order um, and I'm excited to see what that looks like. As they roll out more products, one of the interesting things is how they all work together. And a bunch of the features are, Pretty well supported across a, a single household owning a networking a network of these devices. You can add stuff to a universal shopping list from the devices. When you add skills, it adds them to all the devices. Uh, some of that stuff's pretty cool. The music is not very well integrated amongst those devices yet. So you yeah. you would think if you had four echoes in the house, you'd be able to get your music to follow you around the house, and it actually stops the music on the other three devices whenever you play it on any uh, on on any one device. Yeah, and they have a lot of um, fledgling interfaces with uh, – I'm a big Spotify user. So the the first time I was playing with that, I couldn't get it to work, and I was struggling with what was going on. But it was actually – and I was at work, and I have an Echo at work. And uh, it was actually driving my wife crazy because I was playing all these songs at home. <laughs> and she was like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> um, but it was interesting. So like a week later, I was trying it again, and they had added a switch where you could at least change which Echo it was playing to. Um, you know, so I, they are, you can tell they're innovating very, very quickly. And I think they're a little bit behind on, on keeping up with some of these things that, that how popular the, the product has been. Yeah. So an ironic twist, the other new product is a Kindle that has solar recharging built into it. And the reason I say that's ironic is on its own, that, that seems to make perfect sense. The solar cells have gotten much better. You can now recharge a bunch of these electronics from the ambient light indoors, and so, you know, essentially a perpetual Kindle that works forever that you don't have to charge seems pretty appealing. I'm calling it ironic because the the cool feature you mentioned on the tap, the induction charging, mm-hmm. it's it's a super handy feature, but it's actually an ecological disaster mm-hmm. because the transmission of electricity is way less efficient through that induction than it is through the old copper wire. And so the amount of electricity that's wasted to keep those devices charged as the world's moving to induction charging for cell phones and toothbrushes and, you know, echoes and all these things is probably keeping Al Gore up at night. And so apparently Amazon's trying to offset some of those those uh, carbon credits by uh, launching a solar Kindle. Yeah, and I did see there was an acquisition this week. I wanted to ask you about it. You know, Amazon acquired uh, looks like kind of an artificial intelligence image analysis company called Orbius, and I was wondering if you knew anything about that. Yeah, I don't know them super well, but they have some low level image 
analysis and image recognition software routines. So there are a bunch of these like really academic companies that are that are doing amazing things improving a computer's ability to identify items in an image. And Stanford runs this great contest every year. And the quality of the software is basically doubling every year. So in this contest, they have like 60,000 items in a visual dictionary and the software programs compete to see which how many they can recognize. And the, the success rate is doubling every year to give you an idea how good this technology is getting. And so in commerce, we're seeing it used for visual search for products, right? Like you, you see someone with a cool Vera Bradley bag and you want that bag. So you take a picture of that person and then you want to be able to find that bag for sale on Amazon or Vera Bradley or wherever. But in retail, they're also getting used for a lot of inventory purposes. Like we talked about a lot about local SEO. One of the challenges with local SEO is you have to have accurate in-store inventory. And so now we've got robots running around the store, taking pictures of all the shelves and doing constant cycle count on that store's inventory to make it more accurate, to make buy online pickup and store work better and all those things. And so Amazon, you know, has a bunch of their own technology and visual search. They, you know, they have a bunch of patents on some of the aspects of the Firefly image recognition technology, but it also looks like they're not afraid to go out and buy other folks that have interesting technology that they could add to their their suite of capabilities. Yeah, so if we speculate, um, I can think of three uses. One would be kind of you know making the Amazon app that much better, so the the the, the ability to scan a product and know what it is. So that could be one. Um, another one is. You know, they're investing very heavily on Amazon Web Services and they're adding a lot of interesting vertical kind of things in there like BI and email extensions and all this kind of stuff. So maybe it's the kind of a thing they just kind of package into an AWS service and see who innovates on it. Um, and then the third one would be, you know, maybe they could use something like this as a, uh, you connect it to a drone, the fl- drone flies through the fulfillment center and kind of does an inventory count or something like that. That's a little bit more sci-fi. And I don't really know if they would need to count stuff in their fulfillment centers because I have a feeling they have a pretty good idea what's in there. But um, what, do you, what are your speculative things that this could be for? Yeah, I don't think their own fulfillment centers is their biggest problem, but you know, they do now have these flex fulfillment capabilities where they go in and and do fulfillment in third parties warehouses and things like that. So you you could imagine that in the the Amazon network there's places where being able to take an accurate inventory with a camera is valuable. But I actually think there's a a capability in between the drones and the basic visual search. At the moment when we talk about visual search it's identifying a specific product that you already saw. But when you add cognitive capabilities, you could start imagining, because I like these three outfits in my closet, what are the visual attributes of those outfits that might cause me to like other outfits that are for sale? And so you could start using the image recognition, not to even necessarily recognize an entire product, but attributes of products that you could then use in recommendation engines and things like that to help customers do better discovery. And as we know, because Amazon has such an enormous assortment, the big challenge is discovery. And so getting better visual technology to enable discovery would definitely be something that I would expect Amazon would be interested in. Interesting. Yeah, it'll be, uh, we'll have to kind of see, keep an eye out for for this showing up somewhere. Um, one other thing that happened this week that, that I just wanted to highlight quickly is eBay, had, uh, the, every year they do um, 
two releases that are seller oriented and they just announced the spring one uh, here this week. So we'll put a link up on the show notes, but a couple of the highlights, most of the changes are really impactful for very small sellers. So for example, they've changed some of the fees for some of the smaller store tiers. Uh, Most large sellers are in this anchor store kind of tier. The price goes up $150, but it kind of is offset by some free listings. So it's net neutral. Um, they are expanding every product will now have product reviews and they're, they're asking every buyer to review products there. They're, I've seen some confusion as I look through these product reviews, I'll see things like, you know, uh, I'll be looking at some headphones and it'll say great seller, a plus plus. So, so I think the eBay buyers are, are just so used to the old feedback system. Whenever they see a text field, they're throwing in what they're used to. So it's going to take a while for that to kind of really get get root with the buyers out there. This is part of a really big initiative, a multi-year initiative. Um, you mentioned it earlier in the Google piece called Structured Data Initiative, or SDI, where eBay is really trying to build an Amazon-like catalog so that they, they can do a lot better advertising, user discovery, and those kinds of things. So this product review is part of that. Um, they have also done a lot of interesting mobile optimization so that when in in the mobile app or mobile web uh, as a seller, you know, you used to, they used to just scale down kind of what you had given them and it was, it could be hit or miss and they're still, still do that, but they're now giving you as the seller the ability to say, here's my desktop description of my product and it has all this whiz bang stuff. And then here's my mobile version. Also on that topic, uh, a lot of eBay sellers like to use these kind of things that have, you know, some of them have dancing money. They have all kinds of wacky things out there. Some of them, you know, do add e-commerce capabilities to eBay. So they'll have product recommendations in them or they'll say, hey, if you're interested in this product, check out my store where I have some similar items. A lot of those use uh, what's called active content. And um, a lot of this is old school um you know, Flash kind of stuff or JavaScript, um, which is known to be uh, really bad on mobile. So on mobile, they strip all that out. Uh, and then they've announced as part of this overall initiative to clean up the site that that active content is going to go away. Um, now, the thing I'm a little depressed about is they're saying it's going to go away in 2017. I, I feel like I would love for this to be gone by this holiday season because I do think it slows the site down. It, it is unsightly. Um uh, and then the last one I wanted to mention is I've got a lot of questions about this is they are now announcing eBay branded boxes. You know, the, I think they, they are finally tired of seeing all, all those Amazon boxes shipping around the world. So um, there's a big misunderstanding though. I think a lot of people felt like they were giving these to sellers for free and that you would see millions of these boxes showing up, but they're actually charging the sellers for them. Uh, they're saying it's a, they've, they've negotiated a great rate Um but I don't know because, you know, if, if I'm a seller, most of the sellers I know have, they ship enough volume that they have really, really good um, rates and they want their own brand on their boxes, the larger sellers. So I think this is going to appeal to the small sellers uh, that that really are having a struggling to get a good discount on boxes. So you may see some of this being used, but I think it's going to be really more one-off than than something that's out there all the time. So overall, like a, a release that's probably going to benefit a lot of eBay sellers, but I'm with you on a couple of the quirky things. Like I was really surprised how slowly they're getting rid of the active content, both from a, it's sort of a dubious customer experience perspective. And certainly the performance hit is very expensive to e-commerce conversion. But I, if I'm remembering correctly, I want to say Checkpoint, one of the big security companies back in February found and demonstrated an actual like exploit that could be used to hack a user through active content on eBay 
And Checkpoint came public. Like usually what you do is you find these zero-day vulnerabilities, you tell the vendor, give them a chance to fix it, and then you announce it and take credit for discovering it. And Checkpoint apparently found it in December, told eBay about it, and eBay told them in February that, yeah, they're not going to fix it. Well, now they're going to fix it, but it'll be 2017. So there you go. (laughs) Be a little careful shopping those active content things. Be careful where you click. Public service announcement there. The boxes thing to me is just crazy. Like, I think it's a reasonably good idea for them to offer boxes, but shipping boxes are not one of these things that are elastic based on volume anymore. Like, the, the supply chain for them is so efficient, and there are so many made in the world that it's not way cheaper to buy a million boxes than it is to buy 10 boxes. And so I don't buy that eBay's, you know, magically giving any of their sellers a way better deal on the box. And the box has eBay advertising on it. They should be paying the sellers for advertising on those boxes. That's uh, exactly what I said. So great minds to collect on that one. Yeah. Or the uh, podcast together. A really quick one. I think we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that it looked like Alibaba was going to pass Walmart as the, the biggest retailer in the world. And that appears to have happened. So congratulations to Alibaba on that. Congrats, Jack. I did want to touch on upcoming events because there's some really exciting ones this week. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Next week, there's three events. So there's the Channel Advisor Catalyst, and then Magento's having their Imagine Conference. Both of those are in Vegas. And then Facebook's having uh, F8, which they always tell me to say fate, but I think that confuses people. Uh, and there's there's already a lot of chatter around Facebook Messenger and chatbots and conversational commerce. So uh, purposely didn't talk about it this week, so that I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot next week. I'm sure there's going to be some big announcements. Um, unfortunately, I'm not able to make it to Catalyst this year because of my kids' spring break. Uh, and But you're going to be there carrying the flag for the show, so I appreciate that and look forward to hearing what happens. Um, then we both will be at Shock Talk which is May 15th to 18th. That's a new show. So it's going to be interesting to see what's going on there. seems like they have a, a big new speaker announced uh, almost every other day. So that that's going to be um, really interesting. Something like 310 speakers. Uh, and then the other one I'm keeping an eye out of, uh, 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 because of augmented reality, virtual reality is Google I.O., where there's supposedly going to be some kind of interesting demonstration there uh, on May 18th. So those are the upcoming events to be aware of. My friends at Magento are upset with me because I will be uh, speaking at Catalyst and attending that one instead of Magento. And I, you know, between sessions, I'll definitely be on my phone following F8 because I do think we're going to have some very relevant commerce announcements at the show this year. So an exciting week in commerce coming up, and we'll look forward to updating all the listeners after it happens, because once again, our time has flown by. So I will remind everyone that we love getting your feedback, and if you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you'd write us an iTunes review. Hopefully I'll get a chance to meet and see some of you in person next week in Las Vegas. And until then, happy commerce. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review.